Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. So our speaker this evening received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cudabak writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. Cudabak also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, in which he publishes his own reflections on philosophy and the household. Dr. Cudabak is an avid gardener, uh, hunter, and lives with his wife and six children in the Shenandoah Valley. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cudabak. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much, Andy, and good evening, everybody. I was a little depressed yesterday as I was thinking about the end of the octave, if you, if you are praying evening prayer this evening, at the end of evening prayer, it will say, here ends the Easter octave. And there's always that sad moment of the Easter octave, which in a sense is the extension of Easter day. And uh, you know, so we can say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it in a very special way for the whole week long. But I'm, I'm happy to say I feel like I, I received a little gift from the Holy Spirit because flowing into my mind was when I was younger particularly I would listen to stained glass bluegrass. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's a great, very American earlier and still done now in general Protestant folk music and the stained glass bluegrass part is, is the hymns. And one, one line that is often used in them, I always appreciate it very much, is one great day, and then, or, or they'll say, one great day in the morning. And it, it just brought to my mind, heaven will be one, just one, one great day. St. Thomas Aquinas says that the Lord's day now for us is where we prepare for the unending Lord's Day. So this is, this is what we hold as, as Christians, that there actually will come the end of days and it just being a day. And so it's fitting, it's fitting that our celebration here of the Easter octave come to an end. It needs to come to an end. It actually gives us a sense of stopping and thinking. We're not there yet to the great day. Right now we have a cycle of liturgy that leads us through preparing for that day. But I do say this when I think of the people singing those stained glass bluegrass songs, thinking about that one great day. Some people might look at them and say, they're not living in the present. They're living in the future. And here's my response to that. When a Christian looks to one great day, he's actually living in the present. Don't we live in the present better by looking to the one great day, which alone gives meaning to our present? So you're actually living in the present by even constantly, habitually referring and thinking ahead to one great day. It's not an escapism. It's what gives reality to living in this present moment right here today. So the fact that there is that great day coming gives meaning 
to this day, today. So there's nothing to be sad about in the end of the, end of the Easter octave here. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. I'm going to give you a very different quotation here. If anyone's ever read with their children A.A. A. Milne and Winnie the Pooh, here's just a funny little quotation. Pooh is, is humming a little tune. Rabbit comes up, hello, Pooh, said Rabbit. Hello, Rabbit, said Pooh dreamily. Did you make up that song, says Rabbit. Well, I sort of made it up said Pooh. He went on, it isn't brain, because you know why, Rabbit. Song comes to me sometimes. Ah, said Rabbit, who never let things come to him, but always went and fetched them. Whenever I would hear that, I would stop and think, I, I think I have a lot in common with Rabbit. <laughs> and I thought of it in, in relation to our theme this evening of hearing God's word. What does it take to hear God's word? Those of us who have more of this challenge of always being the ones who go and fetch things rather than letting them come to us came to my mind. I think a major way to begin to think about hearing God's word is learning to let things come to us in the sense of learning to receive the gift that is always being given to us. It's easy for us to miss it. We have to learn to tune into it so as to receive it. I'm going to read to you several quotations, and I gave you a handout. If you don't have the handout on hand, that's okay. And I'm going to read the first four quotations here. And after I read them to you, I'm going to give you a little quiz. I'll tell you beforehand what the quiz is so they don't be distracted by it. The way my students, you never use the Q word in the classroom. All of a sudden, everyone's in a tizzy, and they're not listening anymore. <laughs> what do these four quotations have in common with one another? God put Abraham to the test. He called to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, dot, dot, dot. Come to me heedfully. Listen that you may have life. Next, another from Isaiah. For just as from the heavens the rain and snow come down and do not return there till they have watered the earth, making it fertile and fruitful, giving seed to the one who sows and bread to the one who eats. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. My word shall not return to me void, but shall do my will, achieving the end for which I sent it. Finally, from Baruch. Hear, O Israel, the commandments of life. Listen and know prudence. Does anyone ha happen to recognize what those, what those four readings have in common with one another? They are indeed all commands from, from God to listen. If you were at a certain liturgy, you would have heard every one of those all in one sitting not very long ago if you happen to have been at this liturgy. Every one of those is from the Easter Vigil. And so as I was sitting at the Easter Vigil, this kind of recurring theme particularly struck me, and so that's why um, I'm sharing this with you. My overall point this evening, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be this. For us to have abundant life, the life precisely that God is offering to us as a gift, we must learn to listen and receive his word. That's my theme for the whole evening. If we are going to have the abundant life especially as we think of that in this Easter season, the risen life to which we are called, which we are called to live unendingly in that one great day. But we should begin to live it now. If we are going to have that abundant life, we must learn to hear the word of God. For the word of God, as heard by us, 
is the principle, and I'm going to use our Lord's image, is the seed of that very life. So that's going to be my main point of the evening. Here is my plan. Three parts. First of all, a couple of points about human nature. Secondly, a couple of points about how God speaks to us. And there I'm going to make a distinction between the way he speaks to all of us in general, and then a little bit about how he speaks to us as individuals. And then I'm going to end with a few suggestions. So those are the three parts. Again, a couple of points about human nature in general. A couple of points about how God speaks to us. First, us generally that we all share in common. And then particularly how he speaks to us as individuals. And then I'm going to make a couple of suggestions in view of that. What we might want to do in order to become better hearers of the word. So first about human nature. What it means to be human. So this is going to be the most philosophical part. To be human is to be a rational animal. I absolutely love this definition of Aristotle, and we're going to ha have occasion here briefly to consider both of those, beginning with the first, and later on I'm going to circle back to the animal part. God, in his great wisdom, first of all gave us the gift, just at, at the natural level, before we talk about any call to supernatural life. He gave us this incredible gift of simply what we are. I'm teaching a course right now. It's called The Philosophy of Human Nature. I love teaching the course. We spent an entire semester going through the various aspects, although there I was going to say the ins and outs. Really, it's more still just scratching the surface. Of the various aspects of this astounding thing called being human, something we all absolutely have in common. Everything we can do to understand it better is a great way to begin in understanding the astounding gift that we have. There is no reason for anything we see in the world around us to exist unless it exists in some way in relation to human nature. Understanding human nature is the key to understanding the glory of the entire cosmos that God has made. So I begin with the rational aspect. To be human is to live according to some understanding. I have my students picture, I like to have them have images. I, I take them up in our imagination. We don't go up there, it would be great to do so, to Skyline Drive, which is not far from us. I say I want you to picture yourself here on Skyline Drive, and you sitting in an overlook, and I want you to picture a bear coming up next to you, looking out over the same situation perhaps, although not really, which is already to begin to see the contrast. Consider all those things you have in common with the bear, and then consider, if you will, just naturally speaking, what is the difference? As Christians, it, it, if I may be so bold as to say this, at times I think we have a little bit of a disadvantage in thinking about this, because I think we all too easily just say, well, of course, the big difference is you have an immortal soul, which of course is completely true. But that could actually keep us from considering more directly what the astounding difference is here in what it means to be a bear versus what it means to be a human being. And this amazing reality that is captured by the term rational or intellectual. I'm going to talk about this for about another 90 seconds, but it's, all, it's so important just to bring it before our eyes. We should never tire of, of bringing before our eyes this that is at the center of our existence. If we are human, we are rational. What fundamentally does that mean? Well, let's put it this way. It means that we live by a plan that we understand. If we are rational, then our life is fundamentally a matter of living out that rationality. It's a matter of living in accord with some understanding. Every human being, once you reach the age of reason, lives by some understanding. It's not necessarily an understanding of the truth, but every human being lives by some understanding. And the question is, what is that understanding? Everybody in this room has a plan. You are living by a plan. You are not living a human life, again, I'm not ruling out, I mean, there's, there's the sick, there's children, we're referring to when you're in the normal possession of your powers. You are living a human life, 
by living according to some understanding. So the whole question is what understanding are we living by? Another way of putting that is what principles are we living by? I'm going to give you a quotation here from Aristotle. This is on the back side of the handout. It's actually the last one. This is a great quotation from the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle's great ethical work. Some of you have seen this before. It's a quotation where before launching on this, in many ways greatest, I think, of Aristotle's works, certainly in the top several, where he gives an account of what the good human life is. He stops and he warns his reader and he says, who is fit to actually make this study right now or not? And this is what he says. <laughs> I, I love reading this to my young students because it gives them a little poke here. Hence, a young man is not a proper hearer of lectures on political science. Political science is his term here for ethics, the broad understanding, the science of the good life as an individual and up through living well as a whole community in political science. A young man's not a proper hearer of lectures on ethics, for he is inexperienced in the actions that occur in life. But his discussions, the science, start from these and are about these. Further, since he tends to follow his passions, his study will be vain and unprofitable, because the end aimed at is not knowledge, but action. Pause, just to make that clear. What he's saying is, when you study ethics, the reason that you're studying it is not simply so that you can understand it. The reason that you study ethics is so that you will act it out, so that it will change your life. The young man, who he says lives by his passions and does not live really according to reason, which means doesn't live according to an understanding of what it means to truly be human, it's not even going to do him any good to hear these lectures because he's going to live by his own plan anyway. His plan is to follow his passions. And he goes on and says, it makes no difference whether he is young in years or young in character. I think that's one of the, one of the most zinging lines in Aristotle. <laughs> there are many of us too many of us that are not young in years, but are in so many ways still young in character. The defect does not depend on time, but on his living, and pursuing each successive object as passion directs, for to such persons as to the incontinent, incontinent, someone who doesn't follow his right understanding, knowledge brings no profit, but to those who desire and act desire and act in accordance with a rational principle. Knowledge about such matters will be of great benefit. Leave it to Aristotle just to, just to bring this out so clearly for us. What kind of person are we? I challenge you, it's always great, Aristotle's always there ready to challenge us. Right here on the natural level, I challenge you as Christians. Are you committed to living according to your understanding of the truth? We live in an age where one of the great disservices, one of the great lies, is that there is no truth that we can discover together that applies to all of us about the objective truth of a good and happy human life. What an incredible tragedy. I mean, it's, it's as though, how can we begin to calculate the problem? And don't worry, I'm not going to harp on problems, but at times it's part of realizing the gift that we have and why we should be extra motivated. That how many schools take it that they are not allowed to speak of fundamental aspects of the truth of what it means to be human, a truth that applies to all of us, certain fundamental principles that the human mind must grasp that then give guidance to how then their life is lived. So Aristotle is challenging us. Let's not worry about others. Let's ask ourselves, are we ready to take what we hear and to put it into practice? So what does it mean to be human? It means to be rational. And to be rational means we are living according to a plan. What is that plan? Part two on human nature. How do we grow in rationality? How do we grow in our ability to live out our being human? And I'd like to suggest it is fundamentally by hearing. Hearing that unique sense among senses. Hearing, I suggest, 
is the main way that human beings are formed. Hearing is how people become, most of all, who we are going to be. It's not so much by seeing. Seeing is an extremely powerful sight, pardon me, sense, and it, it is one that we would think in terms of when we think of, say, the happiness of heaven. We think especially in terms of vision. But when we think in terms of becoming ourselves, what are we hearing? What are we being told? Whether it's the universal principles that we will then live by, or whether it's the stories that we hear. I don't think we can overemphasize the importance of stories that we hear. Humans are always people of stories because our own life is truly a story. And so great cultures have always understood key to how we come to understand, particularly as we're young, but not even just the young throughout life, how we understand our own story, how we understand what it means to be human, is precisely through the stories that we are told. See how God did that with the Jewish people? And with very specific direction, you come together, and at these most important of times, you tell these stories because this is who you are. So, hearing, formation. Now I turn to a point from our Lord to make a little connection for you. It's my favorite connection of the evening. Our Lord refers to his preaching as the sowing of seeds. Our Lord referred to his preaching as the sowing of seeds. Let's just think about that for a moment. Surely there's a number of reasons. I don't purport to be able to give a complete treatment of it. But I want to focus on this for a moment. What is a seed? Note, note that again and again and again, we have our Lord directing our attention in this way. His words should be understood in terms of seeds. His speaking, his preaching, is a sowing. So let's just think a minute about seeds. What is a seed? A seed is, ex is an extremely unique and powerful thing. What fundamentally does it have? It has the power to bring about a new life, the same in kind as the origin of the seed. Right? Isn't that what a seed is? It's something that has in it the power to bring about another life, that will be the same in kind as wherever that seed came from. So why does our Lord associate words and seeds? This is my favorite point. Because words, just like seeds, have the power of bringing about new life, new rational life, according to the understanding that is in the words. Isn't that an incredible point? Again, why is a word a seed? Because the word has in it, when it is planted in us, the power to form our rational life, the very life that we just said most of all characterizes us as human. The Word has the power to form our life in accord with what meaning there is in that Word or words. So what I give you, ladies and gentlemen, is simply God's preaching to us is the fundamental way that He is trying to form the life that we live as rational. It is his planting, his sowing, his understanding of who we are in us. That's what is at stake when we are hearing what God has to say to us. We are receiving the principle by which we live, the principle that grows into our life. 
Do you see how? If we are hearing the wrong words, if we are hearing the wrong stories, if we have the wrong principles, a life grows within us that is not our own. And we are unhappy and we are alienated from ourselves. Only the Word of God has in it the principle of the life that is our life for which we are, were designed. So, now we go on to God's actually speaking to us. God's actually speaking to us. I make the distinction now between a general way that he speaks to us and then the, to us as individuals. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the general. I'd put it to you this way. In other words, the title of the lecture this evening was, was a little bit ambiguous. Understanding God's plan for us. Hearing God's voice, understanding God's plan for us. My main focus is not going to be on how I understand what his plan for John Cutterback as an individual is. I'd put it to you this way. The most important plan that God has for me, and I think this is an important point, is the exact same plan that he has for you. The most important things that we need to hear that God is saying to us is not things that pertain to us as different from other people. Yes, and we'll address it briefly shortly, does God have individual plans for our life? Of course he does. But the most central aspect of God's plan for us is a plan that pertains to us as human and as Christian, and we all share that in common. And that's where my focus is going to be here. So, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us? Honestly, and this really struck me. You know how this thought came? As I was, I was thinking, there's some pretty basic things that it might have seemed that God would have said to us in Scripture that aren't necessarily coming out as much as one would have thought in Scripture. And it struck me, I think that in God's great plan, the first things that God wants to say to us, he doesn't say to us through his own lips. He actually says to us through our parents. And what came to my mind is when a child is born, and I, and I think right now of watching my wife speak to my children when they were born, it doesn't even matter the words that she said. She told them who they are. And I'm convinced that that's what God wanted to say to my children. And he said it in the voice of my wife. The first things that God wants to say to us, he doesn't necessarily say from his own lips. Parents have that opportunity to say certain things that need to be said because they need to be heard by the children. But then again, as I was thinking about that, I thought, but someone upon hearing that might immediately think, but what about those who dot, dot, dot? Well, isn't our God an amazing God? I can't tell you exactly how, but I am absolutely convinced of this. Even if parents have not said to children what those children needed to hear. Our God will find a way, for he will be heard. For these things need to be heard by every one of us. And perhaps then even, I mean, because it was, it, was it was those very basic things that I was thinking, does God say those things in Scripture? And the thing is, he does. And so scripture stands as that source of really most everything that we need to hear in order to know who we are and the purpose and meaning of our life. God is 
saying to us, I know you didn't need me to say that to you. I, I hope it's just nice to take a moment to remind ourselves of the astounding treasure we have if we just look through then, moving on from the other more natural ways that God is saying to us. We don't have to go to God is speaking to us through nature, for sure. But we're going right to the heart of things. God is speaking to us in Scripture. Think of the things that he's saying to us, words of love. Indeed, Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Words of invitation. How many times does our Lord say, come? Come to me. Words of encouragement. I am told, I haven't done, done the study, that our Lord said more than anything else, do not be afraid. Other words of encouragement, my yoke is easy. And of course, we, reading with understanding, realize that that yoke is a double yoke that we are under together. I mean, the, the astounding words that there are to tell us the things that we need to know to give direction to our life, and speaking of direction, then come those perhaps most misunderstood of words that God has said, his commandments. His commandments that the psalmist says that he meditates on day and night. And the psalmist also says, God has not dealt with other nations as he has dealt with us, giving us the law. I know you know this, but I just want to remind you, this is the type of thing we need to be prepared to give witness to. When we hear people criticizing the commandments, your God asks so much of you. You know how our youth bump into that. You don't have to, it's not a stretch of your imagination to imagine when, if a youth is going to stand by particularly certain of the commandments today, the ridicule that one would come, why in the world would you follow that rule? How does one begin to say, this is what my God has told me is my life. That's all the commandments are. It's my God giving me life. He's giving me direction. As the rule of St. Benedict begins, hearken, my son, and you will hear the precepts of a loving father. Precepts are a gift of telling us who we are in a very concrete and specific way. Think of the power of how God sows his life in us, telling us in his words who we are in this host of ways, right down to and including the commandments. Before we go on, I want to take a quick peek in my handout with you at the parable of the sower. By just looking with you, it's a, near the bottom of the first page. And there's a couple of these quotations I'm not going to read out loud, although when I come to the end and I recommend that you memorize a few quotations, a couple of these I just dropped in here because I thought that you might appreciate. They might be ones that you'll end up wanting to commit to memory as we talk about particular ways we can try to become people of the word. But just a quick peek. You know where I got this from? And I, and I put under the few suggested books, Catena Aurea which means the golden chain, commentary on the four Gospels, which was put together by St. Thomas Aquinas. I don't know if anyone remembers Father John Harden, the Jesuit. When I was in college, I, I had the opportunity to work for him for one summer. And at that time, it hadn't, it hadn't reprint, been reprinted for a while. And he said, John, if you ever come upon the book called The Golden Chain, buy it. It's worth its weight in gold. And all it is, is St. Thomas Aquinas taking for every verse of the four Gospels the thoughts of different fathers of the church. And all St. Thomas does with no commentary of his own is he just weaves them together. So absolutely any part of the four Gospels, you want to get a sense of what St. Thomas, from his reading of all the fathers, wanted to focus on. So I went to St. Thomas and the treatments of the parable of the sower. 
in St. Luke's Gospel. Here's just a couple of quick gems for you. St. Eusebius. Now Christ most fitly puts forth his first parable. It's the first parable, the parable of the sower, sowing the seed in Luke's Gospel. Puts forth his first parable to the multitudes, not only of those who then stood by, but of those also who were to come after them, inducing them to listen to his words, saying, a sower went out to sow his seed. John Chrysostom, Christ goes forth from the Father. This is, this is going big picture. Christ goes forth from the Father in the incarnation, not to condemn enemies, but going out to them, speaks to them outside, meaning outside the heavenly home, until having become meat, that means fit for, ready for, the royal presence, he brings them within. It's a very sweet notion of John Chrysostom. Uh, the sower went out to sow. Christ left heaven so that he could speak, so he could sow these seeds, so that in our life here, by listening to them, we would be prepared, so then we'd be ready to go back to heaven with them. St. Cyril, for when the divine word is poured into a soul free from all anxieties, then it strikes root deep and sends forth, as it were, the ear, and its due season comes to perfection. I'm on the back side, just a couple more on the parable of the sower, just to give you a little sense of it. St. Gregory the Great, there are two things which he joins to riches, and this is, remember, the parable of the sower is so rich, it has warnings in it. It tells us how we have to be prepared. It talks about the problem of the, of the rocky soil and the thorns, and here he's saying a word about that. There are two things which he joins to riches, cares and pleasures, for they oppress the mind by anxiety, riches do, and unnerve it by luxuries. But they choke the seed, for they strangle the throat of the heart with vexatious thought. And while they let not good desires enter the heart, they close up, as it were, the passage of vital breath. This is the kind of powerful language the Father uses. Quickly, St. John Christum again, the order of the wayside, the rock, and the thorns as well. For we have first need of recollection and caution next to fortitude, and then of contempt of things present. He therefore places the good ground in opposition to the way, the rock, and the thorns. St. Gregory the Great, the good ground then bears fruit through patience, for nothing we do is good unless we endure patiently our closest evils. Just wanted to give you a little a taste of what the fathers had to say about the power of the parable of the sower as giving us the whole of Christian life and particularly how we need to prepare ourselves so as to better be able to hear. And so we can think in terms of preparing the soil for the seed. Just want to sound that theme, but I'm not going to follow that anymore. I now go on to the particular ways that God speaks to us. In other words, not those things that he has to say to us all in general, but something about us in particular. My main principle, I hope this doesn't displease you, my main principle about how best we'll be able to discern what God's plan for us is in the particular is if we are putting all of our energy into understanding God's universal call to us. In other words, all these things that we've been talking about, the seed that he sows in us, the commandments, the direction that he gives us, if we are attentive to that, that is the foundation for discerning if we're young, what's our individual vocation? How are we going to handle this problem in our marriage? How are we going to handle our children? Should I take this new job? All those key things that we have to learn how to discern. At the root of that is, are we hearers of God's word about our life in the Christian life in general? If so, I think that's the key where it's going to become rather straightforward for us in discerning the more particular things. I have a thing or two to say about discerning God's will for me in the particular circumstances, and this is a delicate and this is a difficult point, and I, I want to be very careful because I am not a spiritual master that's here to be able to tell you about here's how you're going to be able to discern what God's will for you is in the particular. I have one main thought in addition to the one that I just gave there about the general background that I think might be of assistance as regards that point about the particulars. 
and this is something that my wife often says to me, when I'm belaboring a point and kind of, oh, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, very often my wife looks at me and she says, John, just decide and we will go with it. And I'm going to tell you what wisdom I think that she has in that. I want to be careful to affirm, God has a providence over every particular detail in our life. God is concerned about every particular detail in our life. And we absolutely should be begging him for guidance in how we should choose in every single detail in our life. That said, I think, and maybe here I'm just speaking from my own weakness. If I am, forgive me, and if, if, you, and if you struggle with the same thing I do, then perhaps this might be a little bit of assistance to you. I think that often my temptation was to shirk my responsibility of making a choice by kind of doing this. Well, gosh, I just, I just don't know what to do, so I guess, I guess God's just going to have to show me because I can't discern what to do, so, well, Lord, you're just going to have to decide. I, I, I just don't know, Lord. And I think my wife, in her kind and insightful way, was recognizing that about me when she said, John, decide, and we're going to go with it. Here's my suggestion to you if you happen to have anything in common with what I, with what I just shared there. I think it's a delicate balance of we need to be praying for God's direction. We need to be willing to be humble. We need to be willing to seek counsel, for often we need counsel. We need counsel of mentors. We need counsel of friends. But then we have to be willing to take responsibility and make the choice. And later on, this is the thing about right hindsight, might look back and say, oh my goodness, I didn't make the right choice. God if I may state the obvious, God doesn't intend that we use hindsight to make our choices. <laughs> right? That's kind of a straightforward point, isn't it? I'm kind of proud of that one. God doesn't intend us to use hindsight in making our choices. He's asking me to make a choice right here and now where I'm unsure. And I think to some important extent it's going to be true after I, if I've done my best, after that, even if in some sense we end up saying it was the wrong choice, it was, in some sense, God's will for me in that moment in as much as I did the best that I could. I think not seeing this point, ladies and gentlemen, can lead to a lot of mischief. How many people in their married life take an approach like this? Well, I guess I didn't discern this one really well. Guess I kind of made a mistake there. I didn't see God's will for me. So I think that, that's a very serious mistake. When we've made choices and we've done the best that we could, then that is now what we need to take responsibility for and go with. I see this in the young that I'm trying to help at the college a bit, and particularly in vocational discernment. I, at times, I think there can actually be this temptation to put it off on God. Well, we're going to let God decide that. In fact, you have to decide that each moment. So I felt that I need to speak to this as regards hearing God's voice, knowing God's plan for us. At the end of the day, in the most important sense in which I think we need to know God's plan for us is a thing that we share in common with everyone else. And then as regards to the particulars, yes, and again, I'll stand under correction of this thing that I've said here that on, the, on that particular point that was misleading, I ask your forgiveness. But I think, let's, I particularly want to recommend, I'm going to move now to my suggestions, but I'm particularly going to recommend as regards that, there's the supernatural virtue of prudence, and there's a gift of the Holy Spirit called counsel. I once had a great priest who, uh, giving me direction. He said, in Lent and in Paschal season, choose one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and ask God for it explicitly. Here's one that you might want to try. Counsel is the gift of the Holy Spirit, whereby the Holy Spirit especially empowers us to make judgments through a God's eye view. 
but I present for your consideration. It's still you that's going to make the judgments as empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we're able to make those judgments and live out God's plan in the concrete well. A couple of quick suggestions in view of those, of those principles, and I will close. Remember how we said that we are rational animals? And I emphasize the rational aspect. I'm, I'm coming back to the animal. The animal part is the part that's actually often easiest to forget. And it's such a beautiful aspect of the gift that we have so much in common with a bear. You know what guides much of the bear's life? Much of the bear's life is guided by images that are stored in its imagination. We, too, are animals. And in God's astounding plan, we, unlike the angels, go about being intellectual by functioning as imaginative beings. And the thing that's so exciting, it's, it's humbling, but the thing that's so exciting about this is it gives us a lot that's right there to work on. You know, sometimes those more abstract, far away points just kind of like work on humility. You're like, uh, um, okay, how do I work on humility? But then if someone says, memorize this, all right, now we're in action. I, I can do that. I can make a plan for that. Recognizing our animality, humbly accepting it, and using it as God designs. What am I particularly emphasizing here? The whole realm of stories, of imagination, of hearing. My main suggestion for you, ladies and gentlemen, my main suggestion, memorize scripture. Here's something I have been teaching at the college level for a quarter of a century. Not until about the last three, four years have I had people regularly sitting in my office saying, Dr. Cutterback, I just, I, I just can't really memorize. I'm finding it very difficult to memorize. Ladies and gentlemen, humanity is being threatened at a basic level. When, I know this is a different ICC lecture I'm giving. I'm not going <laughs> to jump tracks into another one. But our humanity is being threatened at a basic level when our use of technology and our other customary practices are threatening our animal powers. Our animal powers are central to our rational and spiritual life. I'm going to push you hard on this. I, I have already in a different lecture. I'm going to push you again. The things that we're doing with the devices in our hands and the things that we're hearing, think about this. What do we need to do to make ourselves better able to hear the word? All right, so, well, right, I've already given the first one. And just some of these ones I'm just going to read. You don't, don't even turn to it. But it was right after the ones from the Easter Vigil. Morning after morning, the Lord God opens my ear that I may hear. And I have not rebelled. I've not turned my back. What if we memorize that? It's perfect with our morning offering. When I found your words, I devoured them. They became the joy of my heart. I've put a number on here that can just be the ones in our favorite scripture verses. By being in our imagination, they're with us all the time. Then in any challenging situation we find ourselves in, these are the things that will come forth by being in our animal imagination. They are always there to form and guide our rational life. A couple of quickies, I'm, I'm at my time. On the negative side, cut out the things that are threatening us. Go back to those issues about technology. I'm not going to go into any more details there. Removing noise. Removing alien and contrary voices. Do, do we just always have something playing in the background, always hearing words? I'm convinced part of the reason that my students also find it difficult simply to pay attention in class, not to mention memorize things, is because they're constantly hearing stuff, stuff. There's a constant stream. You're in the airport, there's the television on. You're in the car, there's, there's news, there's whatever. We need silence. 
Children that don't watch television, that aren't always hearing those things, when they come into the presence of someone speaking, they all of a sudden start to, lo and behold, listen. This is an essential difference. This is something that we too can work on by removing the alien voices, positive steps. How are we cultivating silence? And I'm just gonna make a, a list of things that I think will help us be more open to receiving what God has to share with us. Spending more time in the natural world. Working with the natural world, especially in the garden. Listening to good stories about good people. Learning a craft from a master of that craft. Studying philosophy, studying theology. In everything I just mentioned, there's an essential feature of listening, receiving, and humility. And almost none of the ones that I just listed are common among our young people. I close with this theme that I took from the Easter Vigil. God wants to plant his life in us by his word. He lives by his word. He lives by his word. That's why his word is the seed our life, which he wants to be his life. Thanks so much for your attention. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Kudovac. Thank you so much Thank you. for Thank the uh, uh, very insightful presentation. I've said this before, but it's something that's always stuck with me. One of the most dangerous phrases that we use in common language, it's not kind of what we would expect. It's the phrase, it's too good to be true. Right? It's too good to be true. And I think we've got that uh, temptation to, to underestimate what God has in store for us. I was uh, looking on either side of the parable of the sower, which the good doctor referred to a couple times in his talk. And uh, it's sandwiched by two quotes here uh, of our Lord. Truly, I say to you, this is chapter 13, verse, verse 17. Truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And just a couple uh, paragraphs later, He's explaining why he teaches in parables. All this Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And sometimes we just let it sit on the shelf and never even open it up. If we really had the ears to hear, the eyes to see, the treasure of our Lord's words in the scriptures. It's too good to be true, right? What a joy parenting has been. I'm just darting it. But I see so many parallels with what Dr. Cutterback was saying when he was referring to the parents speaking the first words to the children. And uh, I just had this kind of funny interaction. We were... Um, my daughter, it was the, we were approaching the Easter vigil, and we had made some special treats to have once Easter arrived. And so we were telling her, Mina, we're going to have some treats tonight. She says, no, today. <laughs> Sometimes we just don't have the patience to wait for that gift that God's got for us. You know, <laughs> close your eyes. I want to surprise you with something. No, 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 show it to me now. It could just be the fact that uh, he's got something great for us, and we've just got to trust him. All right. Does anyone have any questions? Dr. Cutterback, thank you very much. As you were talking about how your wife would suggest to you just make a decision 
it occurred to me on the Myers-Briggs scale, you might be a perceiver, not a judger. Uh -huh. what, what advice would you give to us who are on the J end of the scale? Oh, golly. You know, that's funny. I, I, I think I might just have the vices of both. Um, so, well, and, and, that, and that's where, right, when you speak from, when one speaks, as I'm doing, from my own challenges, right, it, it, it won't necessarily be helpful for us, maybe for someone on the other side there, we have to remind ourselves of, well, things that I said so quickly in passing of being very cautious about seeking counsel. I, lo I love to do the double seeking counsel. There's a kind where you go to those that are above you, and that's what I call mentor, and then, and then those with friends. I mean, the more important decisions in life, I, I, we've lost the habits of friendship where we can go to someone who knows us well, who can help us in making that kind of judgment. And also the whole beautiful tradition also of spiritual direction, by the way, as regards a mentor and there's other kinds of mentors too. It's, it's really remarkable, the amazing combination that there has to be in our life between being ready to, to go out there and seize it, do it, take responsibility, but not be precipitous and be careful and to be always recognizing that we have to be seeking what is God's will and not be imposing ours upon it, making our best judgment but not being overconfident in our own judgment. I think I'd most of all say, particularly as regards larger things when we can, take counsel. Take counsel that in any case, particularly with someone who knows us well, that's just a quick thought for you, Bob. Thank you. Hi. Oh. Uh, so the ICC actually had put on their flyer, they quoted Catechism verse uh, 1719 on the Beatitudes. Yes. Uh, and I was just curious, if you look at 1724, it talks about you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the Decalogue, and apostolic catechesis as kind of like fuel. But I was just curious, really, do you have a, suggestions for a prayer rule for us? I mean, you, you talked about lots of things. You know, talked about morning prayer and other stuff. I just didn't know, like, if we brought this into the New Testament, what would we do with it? Where would we go? Can I make this suggestion? By the way, I do. I love that. Can I just really quickly read that quotation? I have to admit, I did not choose that. These things appear wonderfully. This, the Beatitudes reveal the goal of human existence, the ultimate end of human acts. God calls us to his own Beatitude, sorry, his life, this vocation is addressed to each individual personally, but also to the church as a whole. The new people made up of those who have accepted the promise and live from it in faith. Those who have accepted the promise, kind of received it, and live from it in faith. That was what was on the, thank you, the flyer. I appreciate you referring to that. I would most of all recommend, right off the bat, and I, sh I should have mentioned more about liturgy, as God speaks to us, not just in scripture, but he speaks to us in liturgy and the church precisely, think how the church kind of gleans certain things from scripture and constantly brings that before us in the liturgy. I think that the Easter Vigil is the primo example of that. Never will one find a series of seven readings from the Old Testament like that where the church has chosen. Here is our story. You know what resolution I made listening to the Easter Vigil? I thought, I think I want to read in succession those with my family on Sundays because it, it is our story. But I, Bob, I would, I would say particularly as regards prayer, I would say liturgy of the hours because of how the, is this incredible combination of the Psalms done in a repetitive way that aids it becoming part of us, and then these well-chosen readings that are so memorable. It's by the repetitions of the liturgy there, God is, pardon me, the church is helping form our imagination and memory to be more receptive to the word by its very repetition. So if one is able to, the liturgy, the hours, which is the extension of uh, the liturgy of the Eucharist into the whole day is an incredible way of kind of cultivating more deeply to have those words more go into us. That's why when St. Thomas is commenting on these things, 
you, very often you just you find things coming out of him that you know are in him because of his prayer life, especially because of the consistent chanting of the Psalms, which the church has always held, has in those 150 Psalms, every aspect of prayer is in them. And so many memorable words for any aspect or challenge we'd have in life. There's a quick thought. Thank you. And just to make a note, we've got a uh, talk in the library by Professor Clayton on the chanting of the Psalms, which we'll also uh, send out for those who are interested. Hi, can, can you offer some really practical advice for how to actually memorize things? And in terms of scripture, like how long a verse should we pick and what verses to pick? You know, that, that is a great question. Now, you know, there's actually a book, and I can't remember the name of the book. There is a medieval method, and probably you've heard of it. If you look this up, you, you will find it. Again, I don't remember the name of the book, but there's a medieval method where you get a mental furniture where you'd use something like a church, and every different part of the church, you actually hang different words on it. Now, honestly, I have done it. I haven't persevered yet to have that work for me as much as it should. But that, of, of the things that I've heard as regards ways that they would do it, that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages of you just you maybe use your house, you use something that you're very familiar with, where immediately you have a visual image of all those things, and then you associate different things with the different. And so there's, there's a fellow that's put out a, it might even just be an e-book, and I think I'm confusing books. Look it up. You're going to find some things where he says, in not that long, you'd be able to memorize a whole gospel. Honestly, I would just say this to you. I'm, for me, it's baby steps. My wife draws out for me scripture cards, and I put them in my pocket, and they're not more than about 10 to 15 words. And so that's why a couple of the ones I have to say on here, such as morning after morning, the Lord God opens my ears that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned my back. It took me a couple weeks, honestly, to get that one. So I, I, I'm, I'm not that much better than the teenagers that I'm wailing on right here in front of you, although I am a little better. But now I've got it, and it's not going anywhere. So honestly, I'd say take it simple. You know, another one my wife and I do together, and we now we say it when we come upon the hard times. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's a St. Paul. If you start to read it with an eye for, whoa, I like that. That's meaningful. To, I'm, I'm going to say that one for you one, one more time. Honestly, I, I'm not showing off. I've only got about six of these. <laughs> but they do me very well. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When we're worried about something, we're going to bed, and it's just like we just heard that such and such, you know, this relative, whatever, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayers and, and supplications, with thanksgiving. So he wants us to even be thanking him. I mean, there's so much richness. Sorry for belaboring the point. I'm just saying, don't sweat memorizing the Gospel of St. Luke. Get five or six, and it will make all the difference. Dr. Kodabek, to follow up on your repetition here for learning, could you just repeat, please, the beginning of the lecture here, your point about God teaching us through our parents, please? Um, my thought there was there's a whole set of things that God wants to say to us about who we are, and he has chosen to say them through the lips of our parents, which I think is, first of all, as usual, as, as Andy well said, the line is actually not true. There's nothing too good to be true. As I like to say to my students, the reality is always better than you've yet realized. Nothing is too good to be true. The truth is better than you've yet realized. In God's great plan, where there's, there's multi-purposes and how things work so well, what a gift it is to the parents to have been able to be the mouth of God to their children. So that one day when a child stands before God and says, 
I know you love me. That became very clear to me very early on. Imagine how happy the parents of that child is, not as having deserved it, but it's just so. And again, it's scary, the scariest item. That's why I did immediately follow it up by God knew there's risks and dangers and messiness in the incredible plan that he gave. And when it misfires, part of the beauty is that God can always handle that. Have no anxiety about anything. Was that, was that the point? That, that th thanks for asking. I appreciate that. Um, my question, I think, carries a little bit from the previous question in, in, in that you mentioned that God will be heard even if the person doesn't have people in their life to teach them, you know, the truths for living. And I guess my question, um, how do you think this happens for children in our public schools that are just really diverting um, their minds and, and not teaching sort of what were the, the expected truths that, that public schools were teaching? Well, that's a very hard question, and I might give a pretty unsatisfactory answer. It, it, it was, my answer is, I don't know. But I would say it's not an unreasonable thing to ask, and it should just encourage us all the more to be all that we can be. And by the way, you said, and I, maybe I even need to correct you say, God, God will be heard. And you were repeating what I said. I mean, thinking, correcting what. In any case, God's going to make sure that everyone had the opportunity to hear it. Right? And then there's that amazing, will we hear it? God's going to make sure it's been said. If it wasn't said to us through the channel that he first intended it to be said to us, I'm convinced that he's looking for the other channels. And that's in his hands. I, I think we can be tempted to, to hyperventilate thinking, what about those who aren't hearing? While it's a noble thing to be concerned about, I'm just going to say to you inside myself, when I tend to get down thinking, oh boy, you know, what about them? What about them? Just say, the Lord loves them. He holds them in his hands as surely as he holds me in his hands. I think of Mother Teresa, St. Mother Teresa. I'm called upon to be faithful. If I'm just faithful, I pray, Lord, you're going to show me how you're going to take care of that. Make me an instrument to do anything I can, but I can't try to do more than I can do, and I can't try to figure out things that are beyond my figuring. I'm just telling you, I, I'm sorry for the unsatisfactoriness of that, but that's what's on my heart as regards that, and thanks for your question. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Carter. Thanks for the generosity thank of your you. time. Oh, no. Yes. Thank you, Andy. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.